Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In chapter 5, Paul speaks of joy that comes from faith and the benefits of righteousness. Remember, we're justified by faith at the opening of the chapter. Those benefits include Peace with God in verse 1. Access to God in verse 2. The maturation of the Christian character in verses 3 and 4. The indwelling of God's Holy Spirit in verse 5. And now Paul will speak of an amazing benefit. And it's the assurance of the believer. He invites us now to think long and hard about what it means to be saved, of what salvation actually includes. Does the Bible teach that our salvation is whole? By whole, I mean unconditional, permanent. Or is it less than whole, partial, conditional, incomplete? We might think about this benefit in terms of a single word. The preservation of the believer in verses 6 through 11. We are saved. Look at what Paul has already written. We're saved apart from the law. We're saved by grace. We're saved in such a way that both our past and our present are taken care of. But what about the future? What does the future hold? And so, Paul will connect the security of the believer and the assurance of the believer with something that is incomprehensible, with something that is unbelievable, with something that is limitless. He's going to bring it all together in verse 8 with the love of God. The passage will speak of the depths of justification by providing us with what I think is one of the most useful definitions of love in all of the Bible. Many, many people will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, when they want to find out about love, but there is... An introduction that is given here that is matchless in its beauty, its content, its amazingness. That a real God really loved us in time and space in the person of Jesus. A real God really loves us in real life in history. 
not just in theology, not just in our imagination, but a real God really loving us. And so, it begins, God's love when we're morally weak. Look at verse 6. It says, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Each and every word is rich in its implications. But I want to draw your attention to the phrase, without strength. It translates a Greek word, asthenos. There's a thing in the Greek language called the alpha privative. It's the A word. The A word makes what follows negative. So when you say atheist, it means no God. When you say agnostic, it means no knowledge. And asthenos is the word no strength, stenos. It literally means incapacitated. It means weak. It means feeble. Thayer adds the idea of infirmed. That means that there's a sick component to it. It, when you're using it in the moral sense, it's a sluggishness in doing what's right. There is this sense when you go, oh, I know this is right, but I don't want to do it. In the Gospels and in the book of Acts, it's used in the physical sense to describe someone who is sickly, but also paralyzed. Art and Gingrich write, weak, powerless, It's the word that was used for the impotent man in Acts chapter 4 verse 9. Some of you are familiar with the passage where Peter and John are coming up on the gate beautiful. And there is a man who's been lame from his birth. And remember he's begging for a handout. He's begging for some small bit of change. And Peter says silver and gold have I none. But in the name of Jesus Christ rise up and walk. It's a person who has No strength in and of himself. And he needs help getting up. So what does Paul mean here? I think it's a reference to the unregenerate. To the person who is weak and helpless. Unable to lift oneself. Weak and hopeless. Utterly dependent on another person's strength and power. I think that it's a figurative expression. Have you ever had someone say, that person wouldn't lift a finger to help? This means that there is no moral capacity whatsoever to draw on your own strength in order to change your hopeless and helpless and morally reprehensible situation. C.H. Spurgeon used to say, there never was a man yet who was in a state of grace who did not know himself in himself to be in a state of ruin, a state of depravity, a state of condemnation. In other words, in order to even come to the conclusion that there's something really wrong It takes an act of God's grace and mercy imparted to us. Why do so many people think of themselves not in a state of ruin, not in a state of depravity, not in a state of condemnation? How is it that so many people see themselves as good and getting better? You see, they'll argue, well, look, if we just 
had a little more time. We could grow into good and decent people. If you go all the way to the other side of the world, if you ask the Hindu or the Buddhist and you'd say, what will it take for you to live the kind of life that is necessary in order to be pleasing God? They'll say, you are going to need hundreds, thousands, maybe million more incarnation coming back over and over again so that you can become whole. That's what some people think. If they just had a little bit more time, they could be the good and decent person that they think that they could be. Adlai Stevenson, who ran for president in the 1950s, wrote, The human race has improved everything except the human race. You see, the sick need a doctor, the accused need a lawyer. The drowning man needs a lifeguard. The lost need a savior. <laughs> there was a man in the 80s who sang a song. He said, you don't ask a drowning man if he wants to be saved. When you know he's sinking fast down beneath the crashing wave. But in a sense, you do have to ask. Some people like to think that they're only slightly ill. Some people like to think that they're only modestly in trouble. They like to think that they're only up, not to their neck, but up to their knees in an immoral ocean of sin. And that given enough time and circumstance, they can wade out of their lost condition. In his book, Salvation is Forever, Robert Gromacki lists these reasons why human beings are lost. Number one, they're lost because of their rejection of biblical revelation. They're lost because they refuse to see what the Bible has to say about their circumstance. In Psalm 19.1 it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. The idea is that God speaks to us. He's spoken to us in the world in which we live. The conscience that he's given to us. And the Bible that's been revealed. Number two, they're lost because of disobeying their own conscience. He quotes Romans chapter 1 verse 19. When the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law. These having not the law are a law unto themselves. In other words, when there's no clear instruction on what to do. God has placed inside of each human heart a sense of right and wrong. A sense of good and evil. And number three, he says, they are lost because of their relationship to the world. In what sense? They're a part of the world. Paul has already argued. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who, who does good. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then he talks about, and they are lost because of their relationship to Satan. In what sense? Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why don't you understand my speech? It was Jesus' way of saying, how could you not understand what I'm trying to say? How can you so completely misunderstand me? Jesus then says, 
even because you cannot hear my word, you are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do, in John 8, 42 and 43. So number five, they're lost because of their relationship to sin. And number six, they're lost because of their relationship to God. In what sense? In the sense that John talks about in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. And so Paul writes, For when we were still without strength, in due time. What time is that? The time of maturation. When he says due time, he means the right moment, the appointed time. Paul speaks of this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when he says, When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. There are those people who would argue, Jesus came at the wrong time. What about all of the people from Noah up until the time of Jesus? What about those people? What about the people after the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus who live in nowhere land, who don't have access to the gospel? What about those people? Paul writes, no, Jesus came at at exactly the right moment. Not a moment too soon and not a moment too late. Let me help you think this through. Paul is arguing that every human philosophy and every human religion had plenty of time to work or to fail. If human beings could save themselves, if they could have a right relationship with God, if they could be accepted by God, don't you think from the time of Adam up until the time of Jesus, someone would live a life, someone would demonstrate some kind of a life that was honoring and pleasing And satisfying. But every human philosophy. Every human religion. All efforts. At self salvation. Have proven futile. And so look what Paul writes. Christ died. Salvation demanded Jesus' death. In just three times, in just a few verses, verse 6, Jesus died, or Christ died. Verse 8, Christ died. Verse 10, look what it says. To God, through the death of his son, Christ died, Christ died, Christ died. Why is this important? Because for the person who says, what about the life of Jesus? What about the words of Jesus? What about the perfect life? What about the moral, matchless example of the beautiful life that Jesus lived? Not enough. That's what Paul argues. For the person who says, I'm interested in Jesus' life, but I'm not interested in his death. That's because they don't have an understanding of their own sin or their own circumstances. We cannot be saved by his perfect perfect life. We cannot be saved by his moral and matchless example. God requires the death of Jesus. Remember what I've told you over and over again. Salvation is always by a person. 
It's always by blood. It's always by faith. And so who did Jesus die for? Look what it says. For the ungodly. I guess that leaves me out because I'm basically a nice person. Oh, really? Yeah, what about the nice people? What about the good people? What about the righteous people? No, Jesus died for the ungodly. So for the person who claims a righteousness apart from Christ or who claims a goodness apart from Christ, they're in a difficult circumstance. Why does God have to go to such extreme measures? And Paul will take us on a little detour. But it's a detour that's going to plunge us into the depths of the heart of God and the love of God. Look what it says in verses 7 and 8. For scarcely, for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. So Paul begins the argument. Hey, look. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. What is he basically saying? He's basically saying most people understand that life is valuable. There are exceptions. There are people who woke up this morning and they hate their life and they hate your life and they wish they were dead. But most people, most people think that life is valuable. Most people think that life has meaning and value. That the people that you love and that you care about are worth living for. We don't want to throw away our lives. We don't want to waste our lives on someone or something that is not worthy of that life. When you're a father and you have a daughter, no man is good enough for you. Why would you waste your life on that guy? Do you understand the point that I'm making? It doesn't make sense to give your life for a liar, for a thief, for a cheat, for a murderer, for somebody who not only doesn't appreciate you, but hates you. It makes more sense to devote your life to someone who is decent and kind. And so Paul will argue, but, this is the adversative, but God demonstrates his own love toward us In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think I've repeated this over and over again to you. I grew up in a world where God wasn't really all that real. And if he was real, it certainly wasn't in the world in which I lived in. And I hated Christians. And I hated their God. And Christians would come up to me and they would say, God loves you and Jesus loves you. God loves you. And in frustration I said, I don't believe you. Prove it. Prove it to me. Prove it to me that God loves me. And they would say all kinds of crazy weird stuff. Well, you know, I believe in a cause, this cosmic goodness that permeates the whole world and the universe. And I'd say, so? I could care less what you think. I need some sort of evidence. I need some sort of compelling reason to believe that God loves me. And they would give me all kinds of crazy answers until someone pointed out this verse in the passage. 
Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. A real Jesus came in time and space. A real Jesus was born of a virgin. A real Jesus lived the perfect life that you could never live. A real Jesus died on the cross. A real Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is not a fiction. He's not the product of a human imagination. He is rooted and grounded in history. He's every much as real as the most real person that you can think of. Paul reminds the reader that God's love is real. William MacDonald calls this love supernatural, otherworldly. MacDonald writes, if we ask why he did it, we must look for the answer in the sovereign will of God himself. There was no good in us to call forth such love, unquote. But there are people who don't believe that even for a minute. There are people who woke up this morning and they looked in the mirror and they said, what's not to love? That's the way they view themselves. Lovely and lovable. But the Bible says there was nothing lovely. There was nothing lovable. Someone has put it this way. The love of God, unsought in its actions, Romans 5.8. That's this. The love of God, unmerited in its object, 1 John 4.10. The love of God, universal in its offer, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, unbounded in its work, Ephesians 2.4. Unknown in its fullness, Ephesians 3.19. Unbroken in its ministry, Romans 8.39. Unending in its character, Jeremiah 31.3, where Jeremiah writes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Unsought, unmerited, universal, unbounded, unknown, unbroken, unending. Do you realize that we could safely, and I do mean safely, remain in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, for the rest of our lives, and right when you thought that you had said everything that you could possibly say about this text, you would say, oh wait, there's more. There's more when we consider it. Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners. The word sinner has fallen out of favor in contemporary culture. And even in Christian conversation, we live in a world, we live in a universe, we live in a culture that if you bring up the word sinner, people recoil in horror. Are you saying I'm a bad person? We sometimes would use the word to describe people who are in the depths of wickedness and depravity. We seem to want to restrict this word to the person who's a drunk or an adulterer or a person who's living in in constant drug abuse. We want to use this to describe someone who really is a lot worse off than we are. 
We sometimes would use the word to describe it in terms of the depth of wicked living, but here the Greek word is different. It's the word hamartalos. That may not seem like a whole bunch to you, but in the ancient Greek world, way before the Bible was written, way before the Septuagint was written, in the Greek world, it meant missing the mark or failing to arrive at a specific destination. Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey, as the Trojans and the Greeks are fighting against one another, they would throw javelins or shoot arrows. And when the javelin or the arrow fell short of its destination, it came to mean missing the mark in the Septuagint, which was written some 500 years after the Iliad and the Odyssey, in the Septuagint, it came to mean missing the divinely appointed goal, deviation from what is pleasing to God. The emphasis isn't simply on the person who's lived a lifestyle of self-indulgent behavior, but it would include the person who didn't quite make it, who fell short who missed the mark. This means every single human being who falls short of the obvious biblical purpose for being alive. What is that? The Bible says you, are exist, you exist. You were created by God. You were created by God and God had something in his mind when he made you. When God formed you and fashioned you, he gifted you and equipped you so that you could intelligently and affectionately love him, walk with him, speak to him. You exist to glorify God, to live in holy fellowship with a holy God. God didn't wait until we as human beings made some conscious or personal decision to move away from our sin and rebellion. Paul is arguing that you aren't loved simply because you're a moral person or a valuable person. He says you are valuable because God loves you. There's nothing inside of you that would provoke or prompt that kind of affection. Margaret Anderson said, In real love, you want the other person's good. In romantic love, you want the other person. Romance is, I want you. Biblical love is, I want what's best for you. I want what's right for you. I want want what's going to make you who you were meant to be. And so God's love is also seen when we were enemy combatants. Look what it says in verse 9. Much more than. What? More than that? What could possibly be more than that? Having now been justified by his blood. Remember? As if we had never sinned. Remember? Blood means sacrifice. You're always saved by a person. You're always saved by blood. You're always saved by grace. We shall be saved from wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. God's judgment. Through him. 
Through who? Through Jesus. Now, I want you to just take a moment and think about what you've just read. Paul has spoken of a salvation that took place in the past. You're saved. You were saved from sin. He speaks of a salvation that takes place in the future. You will be saved from sin. If we're saved in the past from our sins, and if we're saved in the future from our sins, remember a future where sin invites and demands judgment. I'm going to give you a sneak peek because he's going to make it even more clear later in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation means the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes that you have committed. So Paul argues your sin has been forgiven on the cross of Calvary. Your sin will continue to be forgiven in the future. And your sin is, is forgiven in the present. We use the word saved in so many different ways. But typically what we mean when we say saved, we mean from harm or ruination or corruption or death. And so Paul argues that Christians have been saved are saved, and will continue to be saved. And he knows the enormous cost in order to justify sinners. He writes, by his blood. We're no longer guilty. We're no longer under the death sentence. What was the enormous cost that God paid in order to have the satisfying solution to the problem of sin? It's the death of his son. It's the death of his son. Here's Paul's argument. If God is willing to expend so many resources in order to save you, what will he do to keep you? I want you to think about it. If you have something really, really valuable... Do you keep it in a safe or do you keep it in a drawer? Some of you keep really valuable things in a drawer where somebody can just open it up, take it, and walk away with it. In direct proportion to your commitment in order to preserve what you think is valuable, you will protect it. When I went to the bank last week, I cruised up to Wells Fargo and there's an armored car. What do you think was inside of it? Cheerios? Cereal, red beans and rice. What do you keep in an armored car? Money. Why do you keep money in an armored car? Because in our culture and society, it's valuable. But if you go to the innermost jungles of the Amazon, as you float down a river for three and a half days and you find yourself in the midst of the Kumoro tribe who only rarely have seen white people, if you give them a $20 bill, what will he do with it? I'm not even going to tell you. But it involves bathroom functions. It doesn't have any value. Here's what Paul is arguing. Paul is arguing that if we 
were enemies. Look at verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, I want to draw your attention. For if when we were enemies, past, that's what we were, having been reconciled, that's present, going back, we were hostile toward God, content in that hostility, and that hostility being informed and inflamed by our sin. Now we are reconciled by God. That means preserving us. We are reconciled to God. He keeps us against the day of our completed redemption, which will include both our body in a resurrection and our soul in eternity. Dr. Roy Lauren says, quote, The assurance of salvation from sin is Christ dying, while the assurance of salvation from falling is Christ living. The dying Jesus saves you. The living Jesus keeps you saved. Because he forever lives. Paul invites us to consider the benefits of Christ's death. And then the benefits of his life in this sense. This is the Jesus who is alive. This is the Jesus who's risen from the dead. This is the Jesus who's ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father where he forever lives in order to make intercession for us. Think for a moment the purchase price of your salvation and think of the investment that God has made. And then Paul argues if he's made this kind of investment to save you, what will he do in order to protect his investment? Paul's used three powerful words to describe our spiritual and moral condition apart from Christ. Weak, verse 6. Sinners, verse 8. Enemies, verse 10. Morally weak and helpless. Missing God's goal for the purpose of our life. But it goes even further. Even deeper, human beings have rebelled against God. Most people don't typically self-identify as enemies of God. As a matter of fact, if you have a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a family member, a friend, and you were to ask them the question, would you consider yourself an enemy of God? What would most say? Most would be horrified. I, I don't want to be God's enemy. That's not who I am. That's, that's not what I want to be. Oh, I may be apathetic or indifferent. I may be preoccupied or distracted. I may have other things to do, but they typically wouldn't see themselves as an enemy of God. But in order to really answer the question, we have to delve just a little bit deeper we have to ask a more difficult question. Do you hate God's truth? Do you hate God's son? 
Do you hate God's people? Do you ignore God's law? Do you rebel against his commandments? Do you welcome his presence? And by the way, if you hate his truth and you hate his son and you hate his people and you ignore his law and you rebel against his commandments and you don't welcome his presence, what do you think you are? They say that they're not mad at God. The atheist says, I can't be really mad at something that doesn't really exist. Then how do you explain the hatred for the Bible? How do you explain the hatred for Jesus? How do you explain the hatred for God's people? Right now, even as we're speaking... Just hours ago, a man strapped a bomb to himself and walked into the oldest Christian church in Pakistan and blew himself up and killed 90 people inside of the church. In Coptic Egypt, Muslims are killing Christians. In Syria, a million people have fled and some strong, committed Christians Remain in Egypt, remain in Pakistan, remain in Syria, even though they hate the truth and they hate the Jesus in the New Testament and they hate God's people and they ignore his law and they rebel against his commandments. Here, the word translated enemies, ekthros, it means hated, hateful. Hostile. In the King James Version, it's used as the substantive. It's always translated enemy. Twice in the New Testament, it's translated foe. But again, the idea is a person who takes a conscious effort to oppose what is happening. Paul shows the utter seriousness of sin. In the final analysis, sin is rebellion against God. And it isn't just simply a failure to do what's right. It isn't just simply a failure to fall short. It's an open hostility and a refusal to do God's will. In the book of Isaiah chapter 30 verse 1, the Lord says, This is the Lord's message for his rebellious people. You follow your own plans instead of mine. You make treaties without asking me. You keep on sinning. And here's the power. When you were weak and sinful and hostile, Jesus comes. He loves you. He sacrifices for you because he's planned for you. And look what it says in verse 11. And not only that, what? Are you kidding me? There's more? And not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received not just reconciliation, But the reconciliation. The definite article is there. What is the reconciliation? Again, Wiersbe's expository outlines has a little paragraph. I want to read it to you. Quote, 
Paul's argument is this. If God did all of that for us while we were his enemies, how much more will he do for us now that we are his children? We are saved by Christ's death, verse 9. But we're saved by his life, verse 10. As the power of the resurrection, Philippians 3.10, operates in our lives, we have received reconciliation. See, think atonement, verse 11, where in the King James Version, that's exactly how it's translated, atonement. But 500 years ago, when you were talking with a person living in England and you asked about atonement, atonement wasn't a theological word that smart people tossed around. Atonement was a word that when you combine it together, is exactly the way it sounds. At one meant. That which is broken is now mended. That which is estranged has come together. That which were parties in a difference have now been reconciled. And so the New King James translates this reconciled. The word is katalaje. The verb katalaso. Here katalaje in the Greek New Testament, is always translated, at least in the New King James and the RSV, it's always translated reconcile. All are in Paul's epistles. Again, in the ancient world of the people who use this language, Thayer writes, the business of money changers, exchanging equivalent values, then it came to mean the adjustment of a difference reconciliation, restoration in favor. The idea being that when you had gold or silver and you would exchange it for goods and services and someone came up with the short end of the stick. Hey, wait. If silver is $30 an ounce and gold is $3,000 an ounce, how many ounces of silver does it take to make an ounce of gold and in a fluctuating economy where values change and things change they were trying to make an exchange where you would have value for value and so the emphasis here is not a change of feeling by man towards God but a change in reality, of God toward man. The word reconciliation is divine in the sense that it's been initiated by God, it's been completed by God. The point seems to be, in a decisive way, God brought reconciliation. God allows Jesus to die on the cross. And the point becomes not so that you would change your mind about God, but so that God would change his mind about you. God changes his mind about people who were enemies, hostile, angry, broken, estranged, The paradox seems to come in the fact that while human beings are provisionally and potentially reconciled to God, we remain enemies unless and until the reconciliation is offered. The act of reconciliation is divine. The acceptance of the act is human. 
We're not really pardoned unless we receive the pardon. I read about a story in Georgia long time ago where a man was sentenced to death and he was ordered to be executed. But then someone allowed, I think it was the governor, said, I'm going to initiate and exercise a pardon. And the man refused the pardon. And it had never happened before. Who in their right mind would refuse a pardon? What do you do with a person who says, I don't want to be pardoned. I want to stay in jail. I want to be executed. What do you do? They, they appealed it up the courts and they appealed it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that in order for a pardon to be functional, it has to be extended and it has to be accepted. How interesting. In order for a pardon to take place, it has to be extended and accepted. In Colossians 1.20, Paul writes, And by him, that's Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Let's see if we can translate these benefits into the hardcore currency of where we really live, about our very real lives. Remember what Paul has done. He argues we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. The reconciliation in this instance is the harmony between God and man through the sacrificial work of the Savior. Sin is the source of estrangement, alienation, and enmity. Jesus puts away that sin. The sinner experiences harmony with God. Paul wants the believer to experience the full assurance of salvation. The full assurance of salvation is connected to justification. Peace with God in verse 1. Access to God in verse 2. Assurance from God in verse 3. Suffering that produces perseverance, which changes your character, which produces hope in verse 4 and 5. The believer is preserved or guaranteed on the basis of what Jesus has done. And Jesus died motivated by a genuine and demonstrated love in verses 7 and 8. He dies to save us and now he lives to keep us saved. That's the chapter. You know what I envision? Paul sitting in the front row going, Amen! That's exactly what I meant. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them, And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Paul says, this is my message. That which is broken, put back together. That which was estranged, partners. That which was empty, now gets to be full. That which was filled with sin gets to experience forgiveness. This is the message of reconciliation. God and human beings no longer need to be estranged from one another. Clarence McCartney tells the touching story of a husband and a wife 
who became estranged and decided to separate from one another. They moved away and they lived in different parts of the country. And the husband happened to return to the city on business. And he went out to the cemetery, to the grave of their only son. And standing by the grave, he heard a step behind him. And he turned. And he looked. And there was his estranged wife. And their first response, their immediate response, the first thing they thought to do was to get out of there as quickly as possible. But they fought the feeling. And they approached the grave. They had a common interest. And instead of turning away, they clasped hands over the grave of their son. And they were reconciled. They were reconciled by his death. How is that possible? How can anyone's death reconcile two people who are hurt and bitter and angry and estranged from one another? It's when both parties can appeal to the one party that they love and who loves them. This is exactly what Paul means when he says, his death saves you. His life keeps you saved. Oh, there's still way more, but that'll have to wait till next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a powerful statement. Broken people, estranged from one another, reconciled, made whole, made well. And Heavenly Father, again, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, when we think about the person who, in their wildest dreams, think that they can be reconciled to you on their own merit, or according to their own goodness, or according to their own righteousness, you begin to see how just, how impossible that it is. We come to you, Lord, on the basis of what Jesus has done. Lord, we come to you justified by faith. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you that you loved us when we were sinfully corrupt. You loved us when we were morally weak. You saved us from sin and from wrath and from falling away that we can trust your salvation now tomorrow that Lord you are are at work (laughs) protecting your assets making sure that what you love and what you sacrificed for will be kept and so again like the New Testament writer we say now unto you who is able to keep us from falling And to present us faultless before your throne. Be all power 
and glory and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.